Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates classic, cult, and current films, and the people that made them, and many other aspects of pop culture. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury, and our signature theme was composed by Greg Lerhoff. Here it's always Saturday night, and our mission is to chronicle film and pop cultural history one memory at a time. Tonight, we welcome Robert Florzak, a world-class artist specializing in poster art, album covers, magazine illustrations, and picture books, a professional singer, songwriter, composer, musician, and a classy film historian whose latest work is an awesome addition to film history entitled Errol Flynn, The Illustrated Life Chronology. Ten years in the making. Unlike any film book I've ever seen, it's a day-to-day compendium of the iconic actor's life and career with stunning illustrations. Welcome, Robert, calling in from Germany. Hello there. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Before we get into Errol Flynn et al., uh, I'd like to learn a little bit about your background. Now, you're an American, but you're living in Germany. You were born in the States? Yes, yes. I was I was born in Washington, D.C., actually. Grew up on the East Coast uh, for the first 30 years, and then uh, I was out in Los Angeles for most of my life. And a few years ago, my wife is German, and uh, she had been with me in the U.S. for a number of years, so she wanted to come back here, and it was my turn to do my, di- my due diligence. And uh, so we moved to Germany, and that's where we've been for the last uh, almost six years. Where did you grow up in the States? I grew up in New Jersey. Um, and then from there moved to Los Angeles. So how old were you when you arrived in LA? Uh, 30. 30. Yeah, I went out to do a film and it was like going to Oz for me. I couldn't, I couldn't, couldn't believe my luck finally to get out to Hollywood. It was great. Was your family a movie going family back in New Jersey? Uh, not, not that much, although I will say I did get my love of classic film from my father. Uh, he, he really loved classic film. And back in those days in the, in the early sixties, um, on, on regular television, that's all we had, as you probably remember, there were, uh, probably every major city had its late night programs after, after the news and the regular programming and probably every station had a uh, a, a movie station and that's where I would watch classic films he would he would he, he led the charge for me by suggesting the Marx Brothers and Jimmy Stewart and people like that and I immediately got hooked on that and just watched a lot of films on the late night uh, film programs and that's how I that's how I started to get my film uh, uh, film fix and then later on when I was a bit older and I was going to school in New York City I would go to the revival houses in New York to see them on the big screen. And to this day, there is nothing more enjoyable to me than seeing a great classic film on the big screen in one of the old theaters. Oh, absolutely. I just this past weekend, we we uh, ran the sixth James Bond movie, Honor Majesty's Secret Service, mm-hmm. which of course starred George Lazenby, who replaced Sean yeah. Connery. And it was a brand new 4K restoration on the big screen and it looked just absolutely gorgeous. Were you, when you were little or were you a kitty matinee guy? Did you go to the kitty matinees? Not really. I, I, I really didn't start in, I loved movies. I love, I always loved going to the movies. And when I had a chance um, 
probably from about seven years old. That, that was my my dream day to have a Saturday afternoon in the local movie theater. Although I didn't I didn't um, have any sense of the difference between the classic era and what was being released in those days. Although I remember seeing a lot of re-releases of of uh, of great adventure films for kids on Saturday afternoons. They, they weren't current, but I was seeing them. And it wasn't until, like I say, in the early 60s that I, I started to become aware that there was an era of the golden age of the studio era and that the films and the actors and actresses were different than what I was seeing. Oh, currently. absolutely. I, I actually... Kind of wish we had those days back. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but don't get me started I, I on the. It when I when I moved to Los Angeles, I continued it even more thoroughly um, because there were so many more uh, revival houses in Los Angeles than in New York. I remember for years there must have been about ten or twelve of them, and I would I would um, studiously collect the the monthly schedules from all those theaters and tack them up on my refrigerator and just go to as many of those programs as I could all over LA for many years. And I think now, what, there may be two or three left at the most in Los Angeles? Well, uh, Quentin Tarantino has yes. a, a working house, the Beverly Cinema. Right. And, uh, that's pretty much it. I mean, there, there are probably some things going on in the Valley at the Alex. I don't go out there much, so I don't know. Mm -hmm. But, but the, like the Egyptian is, is, is not showing them anymore, right? Or, well, the Egyptian—that's right. The Egyptian and the Arrow do show. Uh, They—they're—they're uh, they're a part of the American Cinematheque, so they do show. They do show classics there, and of course, they showed Secret Service the other day. How mm -hmm. did you? Uh, how did you start uh, becoming a film historian? What led you down that path? Well, my love of the subject had me over the years, buying many, many books on, on the subject. So I had quite a library of, of books on, on classic Hollywood, still do. And I had a few favorites. I mentioned Stewart before, James Cagney, a, a, lot, a lot of the Warner Brothers people. But Flynn, from probably the earliest time, uh, became my absolute favorite. And as I mentioned in my book, there's a, there's a phrase I had come across, the more you learn about him, the more you want to know, which was really true. And as I would learn, I would want more books. I want to read more things about him and I just would collect and collect. And um, while still on the East Coast, it was still just a magical world beyond my grasp. But when I moved to Los Angeles, now I was in not only Hollywood stomping grounds, but his old stomping grounds. So it was a very, very fascinating thing for me. And that sort of, that sort of revved up my fanhood of him. And then... Um, I was collecting a lot of things. I was collecting a lot of stills, books, magazines. And at a certain point uh, in putting together my, I started to put together my own just uh, text oriented chronology. I thought it might be fun to do that. And I was spending a lot of spare time on that when my wife said, why don't you turn this into a real book? And here we are. Well, um, did you, did you do this on spec or did a publisher get involved early on? Her publisher was not involved from the beginning. I decided I decided to dive in and actually learn a bookmaking program. And so I decided to design it for myself. And my thinking all along as I was putting this together, as I as I collected the material and started putting the book together, it ultimately came to twenty five hundred pages. 
and it was really thorough. Most of that, though, was because everything visual that I owned on the man was in this book. And I knew someday, if and when I got a deal on this, I would have to cut that way back. So my thinking during that whole time was, despite all of the work I was doing on it, if nothing ever became of it, it was a fun hobby. And, and I would not have thought too much of a loss. It would have been great to get a, a, a publishing deal, but if I, I was prepared not to. And uh, when the book was about oh, three quarters of the way completed, I started approaching some publishers and I was very, very lucky and very soon got a, got a great offer from Lions Publishing on it. And I went with that one. Are they, are they in England? No, no, no. They're they're out of Connecticut. Um, they do a lot of uh, a lot of books, uh, uh, coffee table books on art and architecture and uh, film. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think if you know Mark Allen Vieira, I think uh, one of his books is with Lions. Uh, not sure, but anyway, uh, yeah, they're, they're they're a domestic company and uh, and do oh, books of this. Uh, I want, there's so many things I want to ask you, but I guess I'll jump right into the illustrations. In doing my James Bond encyclopedias over mm -hmm. the years, I've discovered that as historians, we are allowed to use illustrations as part of fair use because right. we're taking an historical point. Is that right. essentially, was that something you were aware of when you were collecting all these illustrations? Yeah, as a matter of fact, it had been a worrisome sticking point for a long time. Um one agent who was going to be representing it was very worried about this. How are we actually going to be able to get a book publishing deal on, on a book that had literally over a thousand images, many of them from the studios. Um, and I was worried about it too, but although I kept, I kept moving onward to finish the book. Fortunately, I was apprised of the fact that back in the seventies, a law was passed that all promotional imagery from the studios was in the public domain. Um, as long as it, as long as it was produced, not, not um, uh, candidates, for instance, but any portraits, any stills, anything like that, which as you know, at, at the time were sent to the um, movie houses to, 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 to be put up along with the posters outside and all that, all of those things, um, were for promotional purposes for the public and therefore are in the public domain and 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 one doesn't need clearance for those things. The other thing I was I, I, I was uh, I, I discovered is that if you come across materials that you're not sure about, if you modify them, they become a whole new entity. So that so then they are in your own um, domain, so to speak. So. I got around a lot of it in in, in that manner, um, although although much much of the book still has uh, materials that would be in the public domain anyway. So uh, you know it, it covers all bases. Well, that combined with fair use provisions, I mean, the thing is with video now, uh, mm -hmm. the same rules apply. Uh, shockingly, I discovered that um, if again, as an historian, you're making an historical point and need to use actual footage from the film, right? Right. We also, are adhering to fair use, and our documentary on the making of the Great Escape, the Steve McQueen, Richard Attenborough, World War II prison of war movie. Uh -huh. uh, we have a documentary called uh, "The Coolest Guy Movie Ever." Mm -hmm. and we have four minutes of the Great Escape in our documentary, and we didn't pay a, a dime for any of it. So, and no problem with that. 
no problem with it whatsoever. And you know, it's funny, the studios know we're promoting their product. We're actually doing them a favor. Whereas in the past, they would charge us an arm, a leg and, and two feet. Now we can do what mm-hmm. we need to do. So let's let's get into Errol Flynn for a second. For a lot of the listeners who are into classic films, we're, we, we all know Errol Flynn, but how do you introduce Errol Flynn to young people today and why should you? Um, the word uniqueness comes up all the time. That's one of the reasons um, that I would and, and do try to promote him to younger audiences. There, there was and has been no one like him in film history for two reasons. One, um, as I mentioned in the book, there's been no actor who has portrayed more adventurous and even at times uh, historic uh, adventurous f- figures than, than Flynn. And the second part of that is that there's been no actor whose real life, even before coming to Hollywood, um, prepared them for these kinds of roles than Flynn. I mean, he lived the most adventurous life growing up in the South Pacific and in some of the most dangerous situations in in New Guinea and whatnot, um, all priming him for being able to give these, imbue these roles with, with great credibility rather than simply putting it on as most any other actor would do. So you're, you're seeing someone in the history of Hollywood who is, who is on the screen in a way that no other actor then or since has ever been. And that, that's a fascinating angle when you think about that. Uh, would you say that Douglas Fairbanks, the original Douglas Fairbanks was a little bit of a of a variation of, or Errol Flynn was a little bit of a variation of Fairbanks, or was he a different animal altogether? Uh, he he was he was in the fact that they both did sort of physical uh, adventure roles, um, although Fairbanks was a bit more acrobatic about it. There's 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 almost a a touch of the circus performer in his, in his portrayals, whereas Flynn's were much more straight on masculine. Um, storybook hero type of uh, portrayals but they they are in general uh, under that same umbrella of um of physical adventure characters it you know it's interesting we think back to the studio system obviously flynn was certainly a product of the great studio system where they would basically manufacture movie stars they train them they would uh not only acting lessons but sword fighting uh, all the physicalities, riding horses. Uh, it's something that we miss today because mm-hmm. we have no studio system anymore. Actors no. come from all walks of life. I mean, they can be wrestlers. They, they can be uh, bodybuilders. I mean, it's it's crazy. And then the other thing that's interesting today, and although Errol Flynn, we think of him as very American, but he's not really. He's an Australian it's reflective today that most of the action stars in modern cinema today are not Americans. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, the interesting evolution and flow of the way things happen in any business, I guess. Yeah. It's what brought Flynn to the States. What was the, what would you say was the uh, inciting incident that got him to the U S Warner brothers brought him to the States. He, um, he had led that, kind of elusive life in the South Pacific, not knowing really what he wanted to do. Um, he knew he loved the sea, had his had his 
first uh, small yacht and would uh, sail up and down the coast of Australia, ended up in New Guinea, trying every possible thing to make money from running a plantation to uh, taking charters out for people. Nothing was working. In the meantime, he had been discovered at a, on a beach in, in Australia um, by a uh, casting director, and he was cast in um, a very small role in The Wake of the Bounty, uh, an, an Australian film at the time, uh, which if, if you see today is quite creaky, and he's given the, the role of Fletcher Christian in it, and finished that within a, two weeks or something, and then went on and continued his work in New Guinea and whatnot, and kind of forgot about it. But when things weren't going well after a couple of years, he started to look over his life and thought, what did I what did I enjoy? What could I do? And he said to himself, you know, that that little acting experience was kind of fun. Maybe I'm going to try my hand at that and decided to go to England. So he went to England, uh, never went back to the South Pacific for the rest of his life and got himself into a small repertory company where for about 18 months he learned how to act and would pretty much knock on the door of the uh, British Warner Brothers uh, offices to see if they had roles for him. Uh, finally, he was put in uh, into a, a, a quickie, uh, a, an hour-long uh, film that they were making there in the title role. The um, producer there at Warner Brothers, uh, Teddingham, uh, decided to put him in the, in, the, in the lead role and was very, very happy with the results, so much so that he sent a copy of the film to Jack Warner in Hollywood and said, I think we have a find here and I think you should sign him up. And that's how he got to Hollywood. It's amazing how the hands of the movie business stretched out across the planet looking mm -hmm. for people who could possibly be in the movies. Now, yeah. Flynn's first Warner Brothers breakout film is his pirate film titled Captain Blood. Captain Blood. And I have to tell you that one of the most fascinating parts of your book is mm -hmm. reading these memos you found between yeah. the, uh, the production of the producer and the director, Michael Curtiz. And as detailed as they were, the whole thing about the cost costuming making him look sound like too much of a, a dandy. You know, yes. he's supposed to be a, he's supposed to be a pirate. And Michael Curtiz is dressing him up like he's yeah. some kind of poodle. <laughs> That's right. That's right. It's funny did, reading how, those things. How did you find out? Was that in the archives with the Motion Picture Academy? Yeah. yeah. When, I, when, when I decided to really go full force on, on putting this book together, I decided I'm going to take advantage of my proximity in Hollywood to go to all of the archives and get every stitch of paper I could find on this guy, no matter what it's about. Uh, even legal documents and whatnot. And I literally over probably four years or so um, did just that in the Warner archives, in the um, television archives at uh, USC and at the Margaret Herrick uh, library, everything. And so I would come across, um, they, they would give me, for instance, I would, I would call up and say, all right, next on the bill, uh, I want to do uh, Charge of the Light Brigade. And they'd ask, what do you want, stills? And I would say, no, I want everything. And I would be there for several days going through boxes of every piece of material. A lot of it was not usable. A lot of, a lot of it was uh, not related specifically to him. I always had an eye on 
what this book should be to the reader. And a lot of material just wasn't all that important, but I found so many gems and those things were saved and, and put into the book. And those memos were, were phenomenal. I mean, I the, the one thing that was really great about the archives, especially Warner Brothers, it's fairly unique with them. They saved everything. These things don't exist in the other studios. So I would get the daily production notes for every film where you could you could read page by page each day what was going on who was who was on set what photo still photographers were shooting that day and how many shots they 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 photographed every possible little detail and then all of this gets filtered into the book so that as you're reading it day by day you're seeing what it was like in his life uh, and in the and you know, not not only in personal life, but also in in working on the films. And those those inter office memos were often the juiciest. They were so much fun. Uh, if if I can, I've I've said this to a number of people. One of my favorite ones that I'd never seen anywhere else. It was during it was 1943 during the making of um, uh, Desperate Journey. The, not Desperate Journey. It was the, it was the following year. It was. Um, uh, I, I can look. I have the book here. It was one of two films. Anyway, he he had he had. Oh, here it is. It was in um, Northern Pursuit. He had decided at lunchtime to order hash for lunch from the from the, uh, the the food truck that was there, and got really sick, really sick, and they had to send him home. So in the memo. The um, the producers uh, says to the director, um, the next uh, the next day he came in and to try to prove to himself that it was in fact the hash that made him sick, he tried it again <laughs> and got super sick again. And uh, the the uh, crew, cast and crew, being the fall guys in these situations, everything had to be closed down and everyone was sent home. So the next time. Uh, uh, Flynn wants to have lunch on the set. Please keep him away from the hash. These <laughs> are the everyday details that just made this kind of research so much fun to come oh, across. Sure, sure. Yeah. I mean, one of the great challenges for a film historian is trying to piece together the life of someone, obviously, who's not there to look over your shoulder and say, that's that, that's right. In in your research, were there interviews with Errol? Not really. Uh, I didn't. I didn't. Kind of, I, there, there would be the interviews that would be in the fan magazines, and those kinds of things were touch and go. As you as you read those, especially in the hyper realistic days we live now, where you know every every blemish is reported, uh, you, you do get a sense that very often they're not even they're not even written by or answered by the star themselves, but it's part of the promotional department. So, although I'll tell you one interesting thing there. In his own autobiography, he mentions how his first wife, Lily Demita, who was a French star, uh, they met, they both met each other on the ship coming across from England to America when he was going to Warner Brothers for the first time and started their relationship there. And then that story has been perpetuated ever since. Well, through research, I discovered that that's not true, that they had met each other twice on the continent, when he had first arrived from the South Pacific, he had always been a fan of hers. He was smitten by, that was his favorite actress. So he met her on two occasions before that uh, ship coming over. And 
in in the research, I came across one film magazine about 1936. I can't remember exactly the date where the, the, the two of them as a married couple are being interviewed. And in that interview, they mentioned the true storyline. And it's the only time I've ever come across in print a, a different narrative than what Flynn told in his autobiography and then has and has been perpetuated every time ever since. Um, and it's not true. So that so there's an in, 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 uh, to answer your question, there's an interview coming from a movie magazine that actually uh, substantiated what, what I had found elsewhere. I've read My Wicked, Wicked Ways. It's a very, very readable book. So it was a useful was it useful to your research or is it a lot of it? Uh, Flynn kind of uh, uh, presenting his own view of things that may have been uh, not exactly true. What do you think? Yeah, it, it's it's it, it wasn't all that helpful because, the you know, the main purpose of my book was just the facts, ma'am. It's it's day by day when I could. I, I want to know exactly and in truthfully what happened that day. What was he doing? What was he doing? His his is more of a personal narrative. And sometimes he would be claiming things, especially in his early days back in the South Pacific, that I found through process of elimination couldn't possibly have happened. Um, so th that that would happen every once in a while. And I, I used to think as I would be researching this and finding little gaps in, in, in uh, truth uh, along the way that you can imagine in 1959 when that when he was writing that book, who, who would have guessed that you know 30 years earlier what he was doing back in the South Pacific could ever be researched? And his claims be verified or not, you know, but here we are and they can be. So, well, I, I kind of feel that we're a bit kindred spirits because when I was in high school, I started to collect a few film books. And uh -huh. one of the first books I acquired, I'm trying to remember the name of the author. It was basically the films of Errol Flynn. I'm sure you're familiar with it. Is, it, is it McCarty? Was it Cliff? McCarty, McCarty was one of the three. There are three authors. McCarty supplied the photos. Um, Tom, Tony Thomas did the bio material. And Rudy Belmer wrote all of the film um, uh, analyses, film by film. And I have to say... Rudy Belmer, who one of the great Hollywood historians of all time, probably has done more DVD commentaries than anyone, was a dear friend. Uh, he's passed now, um, but he went over every single one of the 2,500 pages of my original manuscript. Because um, he had been somewhat, not only with that book, but somewhat of a Flynn expert and author himself. So he was the great go-to guy as I was doing this. And unfortunately he did not live long enough to see the published book, but he was a big supporter of the project. And we talked about all of this stuff often. Robert, but, you know, that, book, that, that book is, you know, if I, if I had to tell someone who's a Flynn fan going to an Island for the rest of their life, uh, which three books to take with them, that's one of the three along with uh, my wicked, wicked ways. And, and probably uh, Tom McNulty's straightforward biography of Flynn, which is probably the best, uh, straight bio on, on on the on the artist. Here we are in 2023. Are there Flynn uh, there Flynn living relatives? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, he had four children. His his three wives are gone. He had four children. Um, 
uh, a son by the first, uh, Sean Flynn, who unfortunately was captured by the Khmer Rouge uh, in Cambodia in 1970, was never seen again, presumably executed. He had a daughter by his third wife, who unfortunately is gone. She died early. But he had two daughters by his second wife who were still with us, Rory and Deirdre, who were in their 70s. And Rory um, was very supportive of the book and was kind enough to write the blurb on the back of the book. So um, they're very much with us. Well, that's fabulous. Did, were they able to supply you with any archival material? No. Um, and Deirdre, the older one, is a little difficult to find. She uh, she actually is half Mexican because she was um, or a, a Mexican citizen because she was born in Mexico. Um uh, and 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 has moved down there and is pretty difficult to to find. I've never had connection with her. Um, Rory actually, more than anything, looked to me to get information over the years about about her father. Uh, and was and the one the one piece of value that she had offered to me is to was to be able to kind of get very close to focusing on what was the actual marriage date of her mother and Errol in Mexico when that happened. Uh, just before her older sister's uh, birth. So, so she was helpful in that, but for the most part, it was the other way around actually. So Flynn does Captain Blood and then almost fairly soon after that, he does a movie that I think was the first movie I ever saw of his, which is The Charge of the Light Brigade. Yeah. Watching The Charge of the Light Brigade today, it, it, it's such, a, it, it's such a, an amazing adventure film on so many different levels, the production value that Warner Brothers brought to this, considering mm -hmm. that it, they never left Hollywood, it was all shot in the San Fernando Valley, pretty much. Yeah. Yes. Is, is, and the, the role of Jeffrey Vickers is such a, is, is not as defining as Captain Blood, but certainly a perfect Errol Flynn role. What can you tell me about that film? Oh, I can tell you a lot of things. Um, First of all, Cap Captain Blood in charge of the Light Brigade have risen in estimation for me, a fan, over the years immeasurably. There's something about those two films that are different than everything after that. It's almost like those are the last films, certainly of his films, of a previous world. There's something almost... 19th century about them, the way they look, the way they sound. And then something happens after that and films start to get a bit more modernized in a small way. So I, I love that aspect of them. But one of the things about Charge of the Light Brigade that I've always found fascinated, I've never seen anybody else write about this. I didn't, I didn't write about it in my book um, because the, the book is not that kind of book. But what always amazes me, if you watch Captain Blood, which he finished filming in late November, early December of 1935 and starts Charge of the Light Brigade in March of 36. The progression of self-confidence from the one film to the other is astounding. You can't even believe it's the same actor. In Captain Blood, there are, he has, the edges are still a little rough. He's not fully sure of himself. He doesn't smile confidently. And suddenly in, in Charge of the Light Brigade, the next film, it's like he's a seasoned actor. He, he carries himself confidently. He looks different. And from then on, it's a brand new Flynn. And it's amazing to me. I, I, I don't know what the answer to that is. He seems to have been ready all along for 
what people probably were telling him was going to be hands down success. And once he got past that first hurdle of Captain Blood, the world was his and he walked forward with that attitude. But it, it, the transformation is just really astounding. Um, it's funny because um, the, the there's, there's so many things I want to talk to you about. Well, first of mm -hmm. all, let's let's talk about uh, he's with Olivia de Havilland, mm -hmm. and uh, who's also in Captain Blood, right? Yes, yes, but, they did so those two films one after the other. My mother always told me this, and my mother, like your father, was a huge classic film fan, and mm -hmm. she's told me that um, that he was very much in love with her, that there was a true love there, but obviously that could never happen for various reasons. What, what, what can you say about the relationship between Errol and Olivia? You know what? A lot has been said, and I have to tell you honestly, I don't think anyone really knows. I think if you look at everything that both of them said over the years, I think it it sounded good. I don't know in reality um, if they were both free and were able to approach each other, whether anything would have actually happened. They always, one was always married when the other one was not and that type of thing. And, and sometimes I think it makes for good fodder. Especially as time goes on, Olivia Olivia would start embellishing these stories, and as I said, to be honest, I don't think I don't think anybody really knows. And the other thing is, I don't think any of that that kind of uh, problem with the, with one being married or or not would have stopped Flynn if he was truly in love with her. I mean, he certainly went after other women while he was married to to other people anyway. So if he was truly in love with her, I think he would have gone for her. The, the 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 production value on this movie is enormous. Now it's so funny because we talk about budgets today, which mm -hmm. are, seem like the uh, gross national product of some small countries. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, making a movie for three hundred million dollars. I have a feeling if Jack Warner came into the future, would probably have a heart attack because that was probably his budget for the next ten years. Uh, what was the cost of the charge, Leipzig? Do you have any idea? No, it was pretty high. I don't I don't know the numbers offhand, but it, it was up there. I mean, Captain Blood was also uh, the amazing thing about Captain Blood. And I'll just I'll get immediately back to Charge the Light Brigade is that that was possibly the biggest budgeted film of the year, which is also why it was an amazing thing that they were willing to cross their fingers and put an unknown into the lead role when Robert Donut um, uh, checked out of it. He was supposed to be the one to do it. So I was I always say it's imagine that they were going to be doing something like Star Wars. A studio and they couldn't get uh, Harrison Ford for it so they put somebody in that nobody ever heard about before and that's that's really the equivalent for what happened with charge uh, with the Captain Blood and they were lucky and he exploded um there was a bigger budget for Charge of the Light Brigade simply because it was more going on on the screen now, you didn't have uh entire you know uh charges of horses and soldiers and everything in Captain Blood. I mean, so there was a much big, bigger necessary budget on that film. I, I don't know the numbers offhand. Uh, one of the things is one of the things where, where I do mention that throughout the book, you, you may have noticed, I actually also give the current value of whatever money is we're talking about, because I think it helps the, uh, the readers get a sense of what it really means. Uh, you sure. Know, in terms of terms. Um, the 
physicality of the movie is was what I really enjoy because today, if you want to have a column of 500 cavalry, yeah. you, you punch a few buttons into a digital program and you yeah. get 500 cavalry. I mean, uh, right. when I saw Lord of the Rings, uh, chapter three, Return of the King, you know, when or I guess that's in the second one or whenever they are, that I mean, there are these mm -hmm. cavalry charges with 2,000 horsemen. And you know for a fact that there's probably 20 in the front and right. 1,800 right, right. digital ones behind them in uh, in charge of the light brigade. I mean, the final charge is one of the great sequences. Now, I know that it's been talked about over the years with a little bit of controversy that the um, that the stunt team that was working on the movie used the running W to make the horses fall, and that a lot of horses had to be destroyed after that. What what can you tell us about that? Well, I don't know the exact number, but but that's also somewhat of a myth that has been perpetuated. They did use the running W, but Alan Rohde, who who wrote the the great uh, biography of uh, Michael Curtiz that came out a few years ago, in his book did the research on it, and I think if I'm not mistaken, I could be wrong in this, but despite what is usually uh, claimed as far as the loss of horses, I think it may have only been like two horses that actually died in that whole thing. Hmm. Uh, Regardless, it's it's a far, far lower number than what is usually reported on that. Uh, two horses was tragic also. I mean, that they had to do that, uh, that they had to die for the sake of the film by that awful uh, method. And I think it wasn't really used much after that. I'm pretty sure they, they pretty much outlawed that. Uh, fairly Although uh, John Milius does use it in The Wind and the Lion. Uh, does he really? Uh, 30 years later. Yeah, no, it uh, it's... It, for the listeners who don't understand what we're talking about, there's a device where you attach a rope to a post that's mm. hammered into the ground. And when the horse uh, let, lets out that rope and gets to the end of that rope, it falls because it's kind of jerked off its feet. Sure. Yeah. So it's, a, it's a very scary maneuver for not only the yeah. horse, but also the the uh, the driver. Rider. Rider. Exactly. Right. But Although the, the rider at least knows that it's coming, yeah, it was it's a it was a wire, which was kind of invisible on on camera. But uh, yeah, it's just a terrible thing to do. I I would imagine the wind and the lion, though, at least if I could use the term, at least they were probably falling in sand, as opposed to some of the hard ground that they were falling on in charge, which was mostly uh, mostly at um, uh, Lasky Mesa, which I've been to many times, and that is just rock solid ground. Just... Rock solid. The um, the Chicote Fort. Uh, did they build that out there as well? Yep, yep. Uh, I've yeah, we've stood in that exact spot and taken so many photos where that was all done. And um, I have a lot. You may have seen in the book. I have a number of then and now photos throughout the book where I've gone to the locations and lined up shots in exactly the same viewpoint and that that's been a great hobby of mine along the way i have many many more then and now shots from flynn movies um especially those in those early days when they were doing a lot of shooting out in uh, lasky mesa and even even at the old warner ranch which is now mostly homes it's it's, it's really sad I've, I've seen the movie probably 50 times and when when um the uh, colonel sends Major Jowett to Lahara to um, to go on the maneuvers, and Flynn isn't very happy with that. I keep thinking that Flynn's going to whisper to Major Jowett, "Turn around after you go a couple miles and keep an eye on us." But obviously, that never happens. Let's. Move I love on. that. I love that uh, one word uh, that Flynn um, 
basically spouts out when he says maneuvers. <laughs> <laughs> in, in, in these times, sir. Uh, the other thing, of course, if you haven't seen Charge of the Light Brigade, you get a marvelous Max Steiner score, which is Ooh. just just stunning in its power. And um, now, well, Flynn, Flynn was so lucky that way. Uh, several people have asked me, I wish I knew the answer to this, and I don't know whether Flynn was aware of the great good fortune of having such fantastic scores in his movies. Probably not. I, I, I wonder how many actors in those days did realize that they probably just took it for granted that it was part of the, the whole studio machinery and everything. But, but Flynn's movies were, were scored by Steiner and Korngold. I mean, that's just the, the best of the best. Franz, in, in, Franz Waxman, another one I, of my favorites of that yeah. of the music is the score for Objective Burma, which Rishikai. I just watched recently, and it's a very long film for Hollywood in those days. It's it's, it's actually, I, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's Flynn's longest, long his longest film, and, and so well done. And the music is just stunning. now. Let's uh, since we can't talk all day, although we probably could. We should talk. We should talk about the adventures of Robin Hood because if oh, yeah. you're gonna if you're gonna pick a signature Errol Flynn movie, what better film to uh, pick? Uh, was this his first color film? Uh, yes. Yeah, yes. it was. It was practically Warner Brothers' first color film. They had they had done one earlier in the year. Gold is where you find it with Libby De Havilland as kind of a test of the machinery. And Technicolor was its own company, and the cameras had to be rented from the company. And you'll see uh, Natalie Kalmus's name in the credits all the time. She had to be on set or location, wherever those cameras were, to make sure they're being used properly. And they had to be wrapped up and sent back at the end of the day uh, into, the, into the hands of the Technicolor people. And so when things looked pretty good with that film, they gave it the go-ahead for Adventures of Robin Hood to do it all in Technicolor. And from what I've read, MGM was looking over their shoulder because they hadn't at that moment completely decided to do Gone with the Wind in Technicolor. Odd as that sounds. Can you imagine that film being done in black and white? And they wanted to see if there was anything about the filming of Robin Hood that uh, made them nervous about jumping in on Technicolor and everything went super as we know the, the way robin hood looks and uh was given the green light to do uh gone with the wind in color too but yes that was that was flynn's first color robert when color started to become fashionable in hollywood uh did the studios have to change something in the theater projection systems to project color at all or was it there's no it was just, the film the film simply was color film that's that's all color it was film. but those were those were three strip technicolor prints that uh Nobody gets to see those anymore. They're glorious. I had an opportunity once. It was fantastic. They were showing at USC back in 86 or 87. They were showing an original three-strip Technicolor print of Robin Hood. And it was in the vault. I mean, they, they would never show something like that except in this one, one situation. And it turned out that two of the reels, they didn't have two of the original reels, so they had to have Kodachrome prints made of those reels and it was like night and day day when the when the flint when the film would switch over from technicolor to the Kodacolor film uh you could see the difference and it made you realize this is what you're watching in the theaters today you're watching this Kodachrome type of color and 
original Technicolor was like watching paintings on the screen. It was just gorgeous, gorgeous. Oh, no, of course, of course. So to someone who's never seen The Adventures of Robin Hood, give us your intro. <laughs> well, my intro is to a position that I probably could have cleared out a lot of cocktail parties by standing on the soapbox and telling them that I consider this the greatest film that Hollywood ever produced. And my reasoning is that it is superb in every aspect of filmmaking, in the acting, in the casting of all the roles from the lead roles down to the character actors, in the direction, in the, in the cinematography, in the score, in the, uh, the, the great dialogue in the script, every single aspect of filmmaking is superb. And I don't know of another film that you can say that. There may be films where one of those aspects is done better than in Robin Hood, but I can't, I've never been able to come across another film, including Gone with the Wind, where every one of those items is ticked off as almost perfection. And that's my... That's my claim for that film. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, locations of it, every everything about it. I mean, uh, I, we could talk literally for three hours about this movie. I want to jump one. real quickly yeah. to one of, um, I mean, the casting is just so wonderful. But I have to tell you that I went to a friend's house. This goes back to the 70s. And uh, they were running a 16 print of... Uh, mm -hmm of Adventures of Robin Hood. And the one of the guys said, now you got to stop it right there. Stop it right there. So <laughs> we're, we're, we're watching a little segment where Herbert Munden, who plays much the, the Miller's son, the, who, who's the hunter who Robin rescues in the first reel, uh, is, is, is wounded after saving Robin's life from that killer. And says, look, look, look deep in the forest, look deep in the forest. And I'm looking deep in the forest and a truck drives by. <laughs> I'll tell you another one that no, I don't think anyone else has noticed. And, and I spent I spent deep time in that whole area for a weekend uh, researching and doing photographs and everything. The scene where Robin and his men have come across Friar Tuck, who's sleeping against the tree and fishing in the river. Uh Robin tells them to wait behind the bushes and he's going to go and deal with Friar Tuck. Every time the camera uh, aims at the merry men, beyond them in the forest, you have to look closely, is the corner of a house with a roof on it. And I thought, that's interesting. I wonder what that could be, because it certainly doesn't look, you know, like it's from the Middle Ages. And in that spot, when, when we were there, um, my wife and I were there, it turns out that there is a restroom there because that whole area was an area where, where kids would go swimming in the summertime. That that river lake where he and the Friar Tyke have their have their duel. And so that was like a bathhouse restroom that has been modernized today, but it's in the same spot. And that's what you're seeing through the leaves on the trees is this <laughs> restroom. <laughs> but that's you're right great. about that car. There's also a car in the distance in... Um, uh, they died with their boots on in, in one of the uh, field marching uh, scenes in the, in the beginning of the film. You can see a car go by. It's in Pasadena. Oh, wow. That's great. That's great. Mm -hmm. 
Well, uh, I want to go to one other title. And I, I based on our conversation, Robert, we must do this again, because you can't do Errol Flynn in an hour. You need oh, several yeah. visits. But um, I discovered not one of his most popular films, but it has mm -hmm. a great deal of meaning for me. And I have the poster on the wall, which is Rocky Mountain. Now, it's late in his career. It's 1950. His, his star has fallen quite a bit by then. Mm -hmm. I used to go bowling at my bowling league. And one day in the bar, they were running that movie. And I had already seen it at four or five times. And I was kind of explaining to the bartender exactly what was happening there. It's um, it's kind of a, a, a stagey movie. There's a lot where people aren't doing much. The, for the listeners, this is a story uh, somewhat based on truth, but I think it was all made up about a small group of Confederate soldiers who arrive in California to try to turn the tide by getting a bunch of irregular Confederates to take over the state. And Flynn yeah. leads them. He plays a character named Leif Barstow, and uh, he eventually rescues uh, a, a stagecoach. And of course, in the stagecoach is pa Patricia. What's Patricia's last name? Patrice Wymore. Patrice yeah. Wymore, who uh, who would eventually marry him. But it's again, it has a terrific Max Steiner score and one of the most thrilling endings for an Errol Flynn movie. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Is, that, is that movie on your radar much? There are so many films that unfortunately it doesn't get up there. I see it once a year. I have to watch them all. Um, it, it's in it's in my top 20. Okay. It's, it's a it's it's a beautifully shot film for black and white. That's one of those few. I love black and white films. There are there are films every now and then that seem like they probably would have been better in color, and that's one of them. The Seahawk is always at the top of the list for that for that reason. But it's a very that, that has a that film has an interesting mood to it, and I think part of it is the casting, but also the locations. Very unusual location. I was filmed. I, and I found the actual location where all the filming was done. It's just north of Gallup, New Mexico, but I never had the chance to go there to do some then and now shooting. And and so it's unusual. It's an unusual environment. And you get that sense when you see it, because a lot of those films in those days were filmed in the same places. So there's a there's a, a sameness and familiarity. But I think that adds to its uh, unusual aura. Uh, in that film. Oh, sure. You know, John Ford, of course, is always associated with Monument Valley and Rocky Mountain has kind of a Monument Valley quality to it. Because it, it does. Yeah. Yeah. Because of the outcroppings and things which are similar. And and it's uh, although if you see those areas in color, they don't have that kind of orange, bright orange look that Monument Valley has. They, it's It's a different like light yellowing yellow coloring to them and it would have been really great in, in in technicolor to see that but it isn't it's also an interesting film for him he's got he's got pretty serious shadings in that that you don't see in some of his other films there's no there's no light-hearted errol in that no no he's pretty grim the whole time and they have a they have an increasingly desperate situation as they're waiting for these irregulars to arrive uh, it has a poetic quality to me as well because one of his his men has a little dog. Yeah, Spot, good old good old Spotty. And uh, the thing I like about Rudy Fair's editing, uh, you know, the way they describe uh, one of the those action sequences, they they follow the Indians, they follow the cavalry, they follow the dog. <laughs> 
And mm-hmm. it's just, it's beautifully uh, composed by Steiner. If you haven't heard the score for Rocky Mountain, I think you'll be in for a real treat. Now, you, we've mentioned some seminal films of his. Is there one we haven't mentioned that's another one of your favorites? Well, uh, in my top five would be Captain Blood, uh, the, the, um, the Charge of the Light Brigade, Avengers Robin Hood, we mentioned. Uh, also the Seahawk, mm-hmm. uh, which is... Uh, you know, Captain Blood on steroids, really. I mean, really, really. It's probably the greatest swashbuckling film of all time and the longest running of Korngold's score in, in, in any film. And then and then for me, it's it's a toss-up between They Died With Their Boots On and Gentleman Jim. And Gentleman Jim was Flynn's own personal favorite of his own films. Oh. So I, that, that would be... Those are up there. And then, then you have uh, uh, um, Adventures of uh, Don Juan, which is a terrific film. And and shows him in a different light, also with a little bit a little bit of a wink to real life of what he was going through at those times. I'll tell I'll tell you a funny. Um, a friend of mine was a musician like yourself, and he had an, uh, a reel to reel tape recorder. Mm-hmm. And I'm not quite sure why he did it, but one day he turned on his tape recorder and recorded the Gary Owen March from "They Died with Their Boots On." And I'd never heard anything on a recorder before. This is when I was in high school. Tape recorders were not very popular in those days for just your average kid. So uh-huh. every time I would go over to my friend's house, I'd say, could you play me a little bit of that? Can you play me a little bit of that? Because uh, there was no recording of Gary Owen or the soundtrack anywhere. So he got so disgusted with me asking for that. He sold me the tape recorder for $50. And I would set up the microphone next to the television and I started to record full-length movies on audio. And this is decades before video. And I probably played that recording of They Died With Their Boots until the tape wore out. You know, that uh, <laughs> it's, um, it's, and I've become a bit of a Custer buff and reading all about the Custer last. And of course, Flynn's v- version of it uh, was a little bit, um, a little, little more myth than the actuality of it. And even the characters were, the names were changed other than Custer. Uh, I think I think when it comes to films that have some uh, connection to actual history, people will often make the mistake of going into it and expecting they're seeing the equivalent of a documentary. But but these are these are films of entertainment. And I, I, don't, I don't watch something like they die with their boots on to pick it apart uh, historically, because then you, then you lose its its function. And that is to entertain you. And as as a piece of Hollywood entertainment, it's it's spectacular. Absolutely. And off the chart spectacular. Well, we have been having a very interesting conversation with Robert Florzak about his incredible book, Errol Flynn, The Illustrated Life Chronology. Uh, I, I I just can't recommend this book enough. It's a really, it's not only a coffee table book, but you can also put it on any table in your house and it'll look just fine. And it's a fascinating adventure in, in itself in the life of Errol Flynn. If there's a fact about Errol Flynn that's not in this book, I'd be surprised if it's a real fact. <laughs> that's that's Robert, very nice. Robert, thank you. And I, like I said earlier, I want to have you back. We've got to talk Flynn again. Yeah. because We both love Flynn a great deal. And we've, we've got to talk about some of his other films. You've been listening to the Saturday Night at the Movies. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer's Ben Shrewsbury. Thank you so much and have a great time in whatever you're doing today. <laughs>